I'm Arye Cohen, and this is Daf Shui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so, and I'll give you a Daf or so. So, just after Yom Kippur, and uh, thoughts of the new beginnings, new year. And so I thought I'd do something different this week. I want to share a couple of poems from a poet that I really like, Leah Naomi Green, from her book, The More Extravagant Feast, which was the winner of the Walt Whitman Award of the American Academy of Poets. And this is a 2019, she won the award in 2019, so I guess that's when the book was from. 2020, copyright 2020, the book. The award is for her first book of poetry. Leah Naomi Green. The second poem that I'm going to share is a poem that I shared actually at our Yom Kippur services for Yuskar, and hopefully you'll see why. Um, but Leah Naomi Green is a really interesting poet who I... Is the only book of hers that I know, but she seems to, uh, from her poem, and all I know of her is actually her poetry. So I am extrapolating from her poems. She lives in the in the woods. She lives in a rural area with her partner, and one of the things that this book is about is about her newborn being pregnant and having a newborn. Um, but it's also about living in some sort of relationship with nature. A relationship with nature that I don't normally associate, and this is on me, with Jewish poets. So here's the first poem, is called Venison. The deer is still alive in the roadside grass. In an hour, we'll cut her open. Her left hip broken, the bone in her dark body. Now the white Camaro shocked in the night and the boy wet-faced in the back seat, his parents at a loss by the hood, too young to have meant any of it, the giving or taking. They are glad for our headlights, glad for our rifle. Her head still on, she hangs outside our kitchen window for the blood to drip, skin pulled down like a shirt. I watch my husband undress her with a knife. I wash the blue plates. When I turn the water off, I can hear his blade unmoor muscle sail through her fascia. We put her leg and buttock on the wooden table where we will gather her between us to eat all year. It is all I see, a thing, alive, slowly becoming my own body. And now the second poem is called Yartite. All I had for a menorah was a Coke bottle, and the candle crammed down its mouth, narrow end first to fit it, would not light from the bottom end, though I'd excavated the wick, choked from the wax. How else would I have loved but by touching? Yartzeit, Sangfa's ball of flame, light to read Kaddish in transliteration, oldest vowels of mourners' mouths pulled up on my phone, a prayer that never mentions mourning and never mentions death. I wanted to miss him. Instead, there was a candle stuttering, and me praising God's name in the dark, and wax, whose job is not to spark or hold a flame, but to keep the lit wick steady, constant, and disappearing. Book is from Gray Wolf Press, and I will put a link to it on the podcast page. Okay, here we are. 112A, two lines from the top. We have to back up a little to remember what we're doing in order to go forward and make this make sense. I gotta tell you, or I wanna tell you, I sweated this sugya. It's not that long in terms of lines of text, but 
It was complicated. Hopefully, I'll give it to you without the sweat, and we can just sail through it. I mean, I'm talking... All the Rishon and all the medieval commentators had different understandings, different notions of what the text actually said, actual words, like your sa'ot. Um, and then beyond that, commentary, what they what they actually meant. So here we go. Let's see how we do. So to back up a little bit, we have to go back to uh, 111b. Rabbi Yishmael says, So Rabbi Shmuel is proving that we're worried that the, the Pasuk is worried about the husband inheriting his wife. So the, the, the verse that we have is the verse that tells us that the husband from Numbers 36, that the husband will inherit his wife. And then he brings, if as if that's not, that if all daughters who inherit estates from the tribes of Israel, if that's not enough, there are four more, five more psukim which are brought, five more verses which are brought to back that up. Each one introduced by a ve'omer, and also it says... And that's, those extra verses are the ones, the fact that there are those extra verses, in other words, why wasn't it enough for one verse for Rabbi Yishmael to say that that all husbands, all daughters who inherit, why is that not enough to show that a, that, that a husband uh, will inherit his wife, and then we're worried about the fact that a woman who marries the husband will get the inheritance and the estate will move from tribe to tribe, which is that which is behind, that is the fear which is behind all this. Fear which is, ironically, while it is very centered here, is a problem which actually halachically doesn't exist. Because we'll see in the next couple of pages that it is not a, what they call a mitzvah ledorot. It is not a commandment for all generations not to transfer the estate from tribe to tribe. First of all, we have no idea what the tribes are anymore. But secondly, it just was a mitzvah only for the first generations, only for the generations who came into the land of Israel, apparently. Okay, we'll we'll do more of that in the next couple of pages, next couple of folios. So we are through all that, and there are these there are three verses from Numbers, and then a verse from Joshua, and then a final verse about uh, this interesting guy uh, Yair, who's the son of Scove. Okay, so my vomer. So the Gemara was starting on the top of 112a, second line down. My vomer. Why do we need this further proof? So maybe you're going to say that it's because the what the, the Gemara wants to tell us, or what the Torah wants to tell us, is that the son will inherit his mother, but the husband will not inherit. Therefore, there's another pasuk, and therefore you have a ve'omer, that there, the second verse says, and the estate should not be transferred from one tribe to another. So therefore, in other words, that second verse comes to tell us that the husband can also inherit, and therefore it's a problem, because that in that way the, the estate is transferred. So here now, 
the Gemara asks, well, maybe the reason that we have that second verse is not to tell us that the husband will inherit, but rather so that the the woman who marries out transgresses both a negative commandment and a positive commandment. Tashma, so therefore we have the second Vomer. If we just had the first Vomer, we'd only, we don't say this just because in order for the woman to get both a love and an assay, so therefore we have a second Vomer, a second additional verse, Lo Tasov Nachalami Matel Matel Acher. Right? There you shall not transfer inheritance or estate from one tribe to another. So maybe this second verse is actually just set up, And maybe the second verse is just to set it up so that she transgresses two prohibitions and a commandment. And still the husband does not inherit his wife. Therefore, Torah also has to tell us the next one. Now here, something that I want to point out is that Tashma here is working in a very odd way. Usually a Tashma coming here is a term which introduces a text which is going to resolve a paradox that came before, right? we have, or a dilemma that came before. We had a question, and then Tashma will introduce a text which answers that question. Here, Tashma is doing something totally different. It's almost as if it's generic, and it says Tashma as, as if it would say, that is why it is written. So Tashma is just introducing the next verse in this collection. Why do you have the Omer? The Chitema, would you say, right? So maybe actually the second verse is just set up so that she transgresses two prohibitions and a commandment, and still the husband does not inherit his wife, Tashma, and Tashma is, therefore, the Torah also says, Elazar ben Aaron mate, that Elazar died, and he died, and he was buried on Giv'at Pinchas, the hill of Pinchas, which seems to belong to Pinchas and not to Elazar, which also shows that the inheritance which Pinchas inherited from his wife does not come to the tribe. Maybe that was not the case, but rather Elazar married a woman from out of the tribe, and then she died, and Pinchas inherited land from her, thus not teaching that a son inherits from a mother, but rather that a man inherits his wife. So therefore, Tashma Uskov Holid et Yair. Further, um, a further verse which says that Skov gave birth to Yair and then Yair had 23 cities. So why did Yair have 23 cities which Skov didn't have? It's verse, just in case we can get the idea from Elazar, the verse that his son inherits the mother in Cain, uh, and therefore there it is also the same thing. So Im Cain, Trey Cry, Lamali, why do I need both of these verses to tell me this? And therefore we have from here and that Im Cain, Trey Cry, Lamali is like, no, that doesn't sit right because then we have two verses which are telling us the exact same thing and that exact same thing, which is that the husband does uh, uh, does inherit. So the, the Gemara asks, Im Cain, Trey Cry, Lamali. So why do we have both these verses? Okay. Now, here's where it's interesting. We're going to go back and more or less do this same sugya two more times. Amarle Rav Papa Labaya. So Rav Papa asked Abaya. Now, this is a, David Alivni Weiss points out that Rav Papa almost never asks Abaya questions. Abaya asks Rav Papa questions, but Rav Papa almost never asks Abaya questions. So it's possible that actually this was just a statement of Abaya. And also, there is a technical term here that uh, refers back 
to something that the Stam said, which is the latest layer of the Gemara, and an Amora, Rav Papa is an Amora, who lived earlier, and so the Amora would not refer to something that the anonymous editor of the Gemara would say. So, this whole thing here is questionable, as they say. So Rav Papa says to Abayah, Mimai, how do you know this? So let us say that actually the husband doesn't inherit. And all the verses are talking about the son and the fact that the estate is transferred when the son inherits from his mother. Because it also because just as it says that Yair that we said that we that we said about Yair that he bought it on his own and that it says about Pinchas that he bought it on his own Pinchas Nami Dezavin Mizban so therefore that's why Yair and Pinchas have that and actually it's talking about the son who inherits but the reason that we that we that the land is called is named after Yair is because Yair bought that land and that's why he has the 23 hills and the 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 Nevi'im were just talking about how extravagant Yair's land purchases our land ownings were and had nothing to do with inheritance from his father or not inheritance and same thing with Pinchas Pinchas also just bought it someplace else that's why it's called Givat Pinchas because he bought it Amrlei Abaya answers Rav Papa Pinchas deserves Mizban Lamitz Lamatzit Amrit no, that doesn't make sense. You can't say that Pinchas bought it. Why? Because if so, then that field would return in the Jubilee year to its previous owner. And then it would end up that a righteous person, meaning Elazar, Pinchas's father, would be buried in a grave that wasn't actually his. Right? It wasn't actually his because... He, uh, because uh, he, the land would return to its previous owner, and then the field, the grave would belong to that previous owner, and then he wouldn't be in his own grave. But rather say that there is this thing called which means fields that have been dedicated. So if there's a field that is put, that is, cherem can be excommunicated or set aside or made cherem dedicated for the temple. And so if somebody dedicates a field to the temple, then that field, according to the verses in Torah, belongs to whichever kohen, whichever priest, his uh, is on is on that week when the field is dedicated. So maybe this just felt him, and then it belongs to him, and it's his, and it doesn't return in the jubilee year. Amar Abaye, so Abaye says back to Rav Papa, according to this version of the Gemara, which is the version that the Rashbam has. Sof, sof, At the end of the day, sof, sof, finally, at the end of the day, an estate was uprooted from the mother's tribe and ended up with the father's tribe. In other words, it doesn't make a difference whatever you're going to say, whether it is that he bought it, or he, he uh, uh, that it came to felt him by a cherem, but ultimately, what happens is when a son inherits from his mother, so that mother's inheritance is going to go into the father's tribe. You know, the inheritance from the mother, the mother's estate, which the son inherited, is going to end up in the father's tribe because the son's tribal affiliation is according to his father. Umimai. 
So is that actually true? So maybe that's different because we say it was already transferred over. In other words, when the when the mother married the father, so then the land was already transferred over to the father because the father will inherit the mother. So therefore, when the son, when the mother dies and the son inherits, we already don't count it. So the Me'iri goes on about this, says Shikfar Huspa comes to answer this question that it was already transferred, comes to answer the problem, a different problem. If a girl's mother dies and she inherits her mother's estate, and then she marries a person from another tribe, then her mother's estate will then move from tribe to tribe. Shikfar Huspa, that was already transferred over before this, says, we don't worry about this because it was already transferred de facto when the girl's mother married the girl's father. If we don't say this, that Kfar Huspa, that it already happened, we will only allow marriage in one's tribe. Further, dowries are either monetary or small pieces of land which we're, we're not worried about. And importantly, the Miri points out that this mitzvah to not transfer land from tribe to tribe is not a forever mitzvah, as we said before. But, the Gemara says, No, we can't do that because we don't say, we don't accept the theory or the reasoning of Kfar Huspa. Okay. Both the Me'iri and the Yad Ramah note that even though the Gemara does not go with Shikvar Huspa, it makes the most sense and therefore is therefore the Halakha. So what the Me'iri and the Yad Ramah are saying is that, look, if we don't say Kfar Huspa, if we don't say that the as soon as the, the mother married the father then already the land moved over, then you can't marry anybody except within your within a tribe. So therefore, we must say, by implication, shikvar huspa, or else nobody marries anybody. And then, of course, we have uh, this idea that that whole notion of the mitzvah of not transferring the state from one tribe to another is no longer applicable. This week's podcast is brought to you by a special edition of This American Life, the show with the guarantee that what you are doing is meaningless and probably idiotic. This week, stories about breathing. We have three acts. Act one, oxygen. Are you sure you need that second hydrogen? Maybe my very Jewish Uncle Shimmy could trade it in for a new pair of Nikes. Act two. Growing up, Haley was always told that she had to breathe out and in. Now she's broke and never had a dance career she longed for. She confronts her mother and makes her sound stupid. Act three, originally on the moth, a story about something really, really terrible and tragic that happened. But don't worry, there's a life lesson. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, third time we do this, Sugya, or this discussion, with two later Amoraim. Amrle Rav Yemar le Rav Ashi. Rav Yemar said to Rav Ashi, um, they're like three generations later than Rav Papa and Abaya. E Amrit Bishlamashikvar Huspa Hainu Dimitukma Kra Bain Bisibata Ben Bain Bisibata Bao. If you're going to say, use the reasoning of it was already transferred over, so then you can understand the verse, you can explain the verse, whether it is talking about the transferring of the son or the transferring of the husband. But if you're going to say, but we do not say that it was already transferred, 
if somebody's going to marry somebody from the family, so what difference does it make if it's the tribe of the father? The estate moves is uprooted from the tribe of the mother to the tribe of the father in any event, because we don't say kvar huspa, so we don't say that, that, that the fact that it was pre-transferred solves the problem. So we're going to say that actually uh, it does now at this moment when the daughter inherits uh, that it that that will then move the nachla or when the son inherits, right? If the son inherits, then then the son is affiliated with the father and the estate moves over to the tribe of the father. Or when the daughter inherits and the daughter marries someone else, the daughter's tribal affiliation is also with the father, but then the daughter will marry somebody from some other tribe. So, So, no, we're talking about a case where they marry her, she mar- gets married to a man whose father is from the, fa- the tribe of the father and whose mother is from the tribe of the mother. So, in other words, in inheriting from the mother, it stays in the tribe because the mother's the, the daughter will inherit from the mother and the man that she marries has inherited both from the mother and from the father's tribe. And so she will then marry into that family where that the same tribe, she will be affiliated with the same tribes that her husband is. So if that's true, it should have said in the Torah when it put limits on who a girl can marry because who a woman can marry so that the estate should not leave the tribe. It should have said rather it says to somebody from the tribe of the father. But rather, it says here from the tribe of the. It should have said from the tribe of the father and the mother. If that's so, then I would have believed, even if it would have been the opposite, meaning that even if it would have been from the son married from the mother and the father, or the daughter married from the mother and father. Therefore, it just says So, therefore, understanding this that that's not so. Ultimately. What we come down to here is that the reason that we have all these verses is because in the Torah, none of the verses in the Torah says that a husband inherits from his wife. And that's only decided by a Midrash, right? Um, by a Kalvachomer, uh, based on how close relatives people are. Um, because a husband and wife have an odd relationship. They're not blood relatives, but they create blood relatives, right? So their relationship is not actually sanguinous. It's not actually blood relationship. And therefore, perhaps the Torah doesn't mention it, but the rabbis assume that it's so, so they have to derive it midrashically from the verses that it is so. And so therefore, they're, they have, they're piling on all these different proof texts so that it is really definitively obvious that the husband can also inherit from his wife and therefore we're also worried about the husband inheriting his wife and that making the estate move from the wife to the husband. Okay. Now we move on from here. Tanya besibata ben vitanya besibata bal. So there are bright there's a brighta that says that the verses are talking about 
the transference due to a son and the transference due to the husband. And we're only going to get through one of this, and that's going to be the end of the daf. Tanya b'sibata ben tasub el it says in transference of the son, the verse says, and you shall not transfer an estate of the children of Israel from tribe to tribe. So that is talking about the transfer of the son, probably because it says, B'nai Israel, the sons, children of Israel, but the sons of Israel. Are you talking about the transference of the son, or perhaps it's actually the transference of the husband? But when you have another verse which says, you shall not transfer an estate from one tribe to another, then that's talking about the transfer of the husband. So therefore I go back to the first verse, and if I already know from that second verse that we're talking about the transferring of the husband, Go back to that first verse. So what is that talking about? Must be from the uh, the transferring of the son. That second verse is talking about the transferring of the son. And we're going to stop here. The end of the daf. Just at the end of the daf. Every once in a while I think that actually the widow and the brothers roam tried to finish the page at a logical stopping sign, but... Um, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I'm not sure if that's more than chance. But here we go. All right, I hope that that was easier to understand than it was for me to originally understand. Thank you for joining me again this week in the Beit Midrash in the Closet. My name is Aryeh Cohen. You can follow me on X, as long as it lasts, at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. You can reach me with any kind of comments or criticism. Every single email is answered personally at thewidowandthebrothers at gmail.com. My thanks, as always, to my producer, Eli Unger Sargon. Please check out his podcast, Four Cubits, with Jeff Helmreich. They have a new podcast about this letter, the elephant in the room that went around, which they are upset about um, or they disagree with. And thanks, as always, to my wonderful Chavruta, Charlotte van Robert, and to the communications department here at Daf Shui Shachar Cohen Hodos. Thank you for that lovely logo. See you next week. Stay healthy, stay well. Chag Sameach. Have a wonderful Sukkot if you celebrate. Be well.